Book Eight, Chapter Two of The Fallen Leaves. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fallen Leaves by Wilkie Collins. Book Eight, Chapter Two. The inquiry into the circumstances under which Mrs. Farnaby had died was held in the forenoon of the next day. Mr. Melton surprised Emilius by calling for him and taking him to the inquest. The carriage stopped on the way, and a gentleman joined them, who was introduced as Mr. Melton's legal adviser. He spoke to Emilius about the inquest, stating, as his excuse, for asking certain discreet questions, that his object was to suppress any painful disclosures. On reaching the house, Mr. Melton and his lawyer said a few words to the coroner downstairs, while the jury were assembling on the floor above. The first witness examined was the landlady. After deposing to the date at which the late Mrs. Farnaby had hired her lodgings, and verifying the statements which had appeared in the newspapers, she was questioned about the life and habits of the deceased. She described her late lodgers as a respectable lady, punctual in her payments, and quietly and orderly in her way of life. She received letters, but saw no friends. On several occasions, an old woman was admitted to speak with her, and these visits seemed to be anything but agreeable to the deceased. Asked if she knew anything of the old woman, or of what had passed at the interviews described, the witness answered both questions in the negative. When the woman called, she always told the servant to announce her as the nurse. Mr. Melton was next examined, to prove the identity of the deceased. He declared that he was quite unable to explain why she had left her husband's house under an assumed name. Asked if Mr. and Mrs. Farnaby had lived together on affectionate terms, he acknowledged that he had heard, at various times, of a want of harmony between them, but was not acquainted with the cause. Mr. Farnaby's high character and position in the commercial world spoke for themselves. The restraints of a gentleman guided him in his relations with his wife. The medical certificate of his illness in Paris was then put in, and Mr. Melton's examination came to an end. The chemist who had made up the prescription was the third witness. He knew the woman who brought it to his shop to be in the service of the first witness examined, an old customer of his, and a highly respected resident in the neighborhood. He made up all the prescriptions himself in which poisons were conspicuous ingredients, and he had affixed to the bottle a slip of paper bearing the word poison printed in large letters. The bottle was produced and identified, and the directions in the prescription were shown to have been accurately copied on the label. The general sensation of interest was excited by the appearance of the next witness, the woman's servant. It was anticipated that her evidence would explain how the fatal mistake about the medicine had occurred. After replying to the formal inquiries, she proceeded as follows. When I answered the bell, at the time I have mentioned, I found the disease standing at the fireplace. There was a bottle of medicine on the table, by her writing desk. It was a much larger bottle than that which the last witness identified, and it was more than three parts full of some colorless medicine. The deceased gave me a prescription to take to the chemist, with instructions to wait and bring back the physic. She said, I don't feel at all well this morning. I thought of trying some of this medicine, pointing to the bottle by her desk. But I am not sure it is the right thing for me. I think I want a tonic. The prescription I have given you is a tonic. I went out at once to our chemist and got it. I found her writing a letter when I came back, but she finished it immediately and pushed it away from her. When I put the bottle I had brought from the chemist on the table, she looked at the other larger bottle which she had by her, and she said, You will think me very undecided. I have been doubting, since I sent you to the chemist, whether I had not better begin with this medicine here, before I try the tonic. It's a medicine for the stomach, 
and I fancy it's only indigestion that's the matter with me after all. I said, you et but a poor breakfast, ma'am, this morning. It isn't for me to advise, but as you seem to be in doubt about yourself, wouldn't it be better to send for a doctor? She shook her head, and said she didn't want to have a doctor if she could possibly help it. I'll try this medicine for indigestion first, she says, and if that doesn't relieve me, we will see what is to be done later in the day. While we were talking, the tonic was left in its sealed paper cover, just as I had brought it from the shop. She took up the bottle containing the stomach medicine, and read the directions on it. Two tablespoons by measure glass twice a day. I asked her if she had a measure glass, and she said yes, and sent me to her bedroom to look for it. I couldn't find it. While I was looking, I heard her cry out, and ran back to the drawing room to see what was the matter. Oh, she says, how clumsy I am, I've broken the bottle. She held up the bottle of the stomach medicine and showed it to me, broken just below the neck. Go back to the bedroom, she says, and see if you can find an empty bottle. I don't want to waste the medicine if I can help it. There was only one empty bottle in the bedroom, a bottle on the chimney piece. I took it to her immediately. She gave me the broken bottle, and while I poured the medicine into the bottle which I had found in the bedroom, she opened the paper which covered the tonic I had brought from the chemist. When I had done, and the two bottles were together on the table, the bottle that I had filled, and the bottle that I had brought from the chemist, I noticed that they were both of the same size, and that both had a label pasted on them, marked poison. I said to her, You must take care, ma'am, you don't want to make any mistake, the two bottles are so exactly alike. I can easily prevent that, she says, and dipped her pen in the ink, and copied the directions on the broken bottle onto the label of the bottle I had just filled. There, she said, now I hope your mind's at ease. She spoke cheerfully, as if she was joking with me. Then she said, But where's the measure glass? I went back to the bedroom to look for it, and couldn't find it again. She changed all at once upon that. She became quite angry, and walked up and down in a fume, abusing me for my stupidity. It was very unlike her. On all other occasions, she was a most considerate lady. I made allowances for her. She had been very much upset earlier in the morning when she had received a letter, which she told me herself contained bad news. Yes, another person was present at the time, the same woman that my mistress told you of. The woman looked at the address on the letter, and seemed to know who it was from. I told her a squint-eyed man had brought it to the house, and then she left directly. I don't know where she went, or the address at which she lives, or who the messenger was who brought the letter. As I have said, I made allowances for the deceased lady. I went downstairs without answering, and got a tumbler and a tablespoon to serve instead of the measure glass. When I came back with the things, she was still walking about in a temper. She took no notice of me. I left the room again quietly, seeing she was not in a state to be spoken to. I saw nothing more of her until we were alarmed by hearing her scream. We found the poor lady on the floor in a kind of fit. I ran out and fetched the nearest doctor. That is the whole truth, on my oath, and this is all I know about it. The landlady was recalled at the request of the jury, and questioned again about the old woman. She could give no information. Being asked next if any letters or papers belonging to, or written by, the deceased lady had been found, she declared that, after the strictest search, nothing had been discovered but two medical prescriptions. The writing desk was empty. The doctor was the next witness. He described the state in which he found the patient on being called to the house. The symptoms were those of poisoning by strychnine. Examination of the prescriptions and the bottles, aided by the servant's information, convinced him that a fatal mistake had been made by the deceased, the nature of which he explained to the jury as he had already explained it to Emilius. Having mentioned the meeting with Emilius at the house door, 
and the events which had followed, he closed his evidence by stating the results of the post-mortem examination, proving that the death was caused by the poison called strychnine. The landlady and the servant were examined again. They were instructed to inform the jury exactly of the time that had elapsed, from the moment when the servant had left the deceased alone in the drawing-room, to the time when the screams were first heard. Having both given the same evidence on this point, they were next asked whether any person, beside the old woman, had visited the deceased lady, or had on any pretense obtained access to her in the interval. Both swore positively that there had not even been a knock at the house door in the interval, and that the area gate was locked, and the key in possession of the landlady. This evidence placed it beyond the possibility of doubt that the deceased had herself taken the poison. The question whether she had taken it by accident was the only question left to decide when Emilius was called as the next witness. The lawyer retained by Mr. Melton to watch the case on behalf of Mr. Farnaby had hitherto not interfered. It was observed that he paid the closest attention to the inquiry at the stage which it had now reached. Emilius was nervous at the outset. The early training in America, which had hardened him to face an audience and speak with self-possession on social and political subjects, had not prepared him for the very difficult ordeal of a first appearance as a witness. Having answered the customary inquiries, he was so painfully agitated in describing Mrs. Farnaby's sufferings that the coroner suspended the examination for a few minutes, to give him time to control himself. He failed, however, to recover his composure, until the narrative part of his evidence had come to an end. When the critical questions, bearing on his relations with Mrs. Farnaby, began, the audience noticed that he lifted his head and looked and spoke for the first time, like a man with a settled resolution in him, sure of himself. The questions proceeded. Was he, in Mrs. Farnaby's confidence, on the subject of her domestic differences with her husband? Did those differences lead to her withdrawing herself from her husband's roof? Did Mrs. Farnaby inform him of the place of her retreat? To these three questions the witness, speaking quite readily in each case, answered yes. Asked next what the nature of the domestic differences had been, whether they were likely to affect Miss Farnaby's mind seriously, why she had passed under an assumed name, and why she had confided the troubles of her married life to a young man like himself, only introduced to her a few months since, the witness simply declined to reply to the inquiries addressed to him. The confidence Mrs. Farnaby placed in me, he said to the coroner, was a confidence which I gave her my word of honor to respect. When I have said that, I hope the jury will understand that I owe it to the memory of the dead to say no more. There was a murmur of approval among the audience, instantly checked by the coroner. The foreman of the jury rose, and remarked that scruples of honor were out of place at a serious inquiry of that sort. Hearing this, the lawyer saw his opportunity and got to his legs. I represent the husband of the deceased lad, he said. Mr. Goldenheart has appealed to the law of honor to justify him in keeping silence. I am astonished that there is a man to be found in this assembly who fails to sympathize with him. But as there appears to be such a person present, I ask permission, sir, to put a question to the witness. It may, or may not, satisfy the foreman of the jury, but it will certainly assist the object of the present inquiry. The coroner, after a glance at Mr. Melton, permitted the lawyer to put his question in these terms. Did your knowledge of Mrs. Farnaby's domestic troubles give you any reason to apprehend that they might urge her to commit suicide? Certainly not, Amelius answered. When I called on her, on the morning of her death, I had no apprehension whatever of her committing suicide. I went to the house as the bearer of good news, and I said so to the doctor when he first spoke to me. The doctor confirmed this. The foreman was silenced, if not convinced. One of his brother jurymen, however, feeling the force of example, interrupted the proceedings by assailing Emilius with another question. 
We have heard that you were accompanied by a young lady at the time you have mentioned, and that you took her upstairs with you. We want to know what business the young lady had in the house. The lawyer interfered again. I object to that question, he said. The purpose of the inquest is to ascertain how Mrs. Farnaby met with her death. What has the young lady to do with it? The doctor's evidence has already told us that she was not at the house until after he had been called in, and the deadly action of the poison had begun. I appeal, sir, to the law of evidence, and to you as the presiding authority to enforce it. Mr. Goldenheart, who is acquainted with the circumstances of the deceased lady's life, has declared on his oath that there was nothing in those circumstances to inspire him with any apprehension of her committing suicide. The evidence of the servant at the lodgings points plainly to the conclusion already arrived at by the medical witness that the death was the result of a lamentable mistake, and of that alone. Is our time to be wasted in irrelevant questions, and are the feelings of the surviving relatives to be cruelly lacerated to no purpose to satisfy the curiosity of strangers? A strong expression of approval from the audience followed this. The lawyer whispered to Mr. Melton, It's all right. Order being restored, the coroner ruled that the juryman's question was not admissible, and that the servant's evidence, taken with the statements of the doctor and the chemist, was the only evidence for the consideration of the jury. Summing up to this effect, he recalled Emilius, at the request of the foreman, to inquire if the witness knew anything of the old lady who had been frequently alluded to in the course of the proceedings. Emilius could answer this question as honestly as he answered the questions preceding it. He neither knew the woman's name, nor where she was to be found. The coroner inquired, with a touch of irony, if the jury wished the inquest to be adjourned under existing circumstances. For the sake of appearances, the jury consulted together. But the luncheon hour was approaching. The servant's evidence was undeniably clear and conclusive. The coroner, in summing up, had requested them not to forget that the deceased had lost her temper with the servant, and that an angry woman might well make a mistake which would be unlikely in her cooler moments. All these influences led the jury irrepressibly over the obstacles of obstinacy on the way to submission. After a needless delay, they returned a verdict of death by misadventure. The secret of Mrs. Farnaby's suicide remained inviolate. The reputation of her vile husband stood as high as ever, and the future life of Amelius was, from that fatal moment, turned irrevocably into a new course. End of Book 8, Chapter 2 Recording by Todd